You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Happy holidays and welcome back to Surf Splendor. I am David Scales. We have a slightly altered format for today's show. The first half of the show will be a conversation with Rob Colby of Need Wetsuits. And then the second half of the show will be my pre-pipe masters analysis. I've been eager to offer detailed analysis before and after each CT event. And Scott and I kind of attempt to do so oftentimes in our Surf News episodes. But it usually goes off the rails. We end up discussing steak recipes, haircuts, music documentaries, whatever else. You're very familiar with the show, I'm sure. Anyway, as an experimental format today, I'm going to offer you this analysis kind of as a monologue, not a conversation. I'll just give you my analysis of the upcoming Pipe Masters event. And then please, of course, as always, give me your feedback on it. And if you dig it, perhaps I'll implement it through the 2017 WSL season of events. And then also, quick reminder, just I want to get out at the top of the show. If you play Fantasy Surfer, make sure to get your wager in for Pipe. Obviously, it's going to start in the next day or two. The waiting period is actually on the 8th. Um, so if you haven't gotten your wager in, definitely send that. Fan- we play on the FantasySurfer.com platform. The WSL has a separate platform. And um, it's free to play. Join our clubhouse. It's just called Surf Splendor. But then if you want to wager, you could send a wager via PayPal. And all the instructions for how to do that are on surfsplendorpodcast.com. It's a $10 wager per event, winner takes all. Um, I've always felt an obligation to you, the listener, to be consistent with this podcast content, both in frequency and quality. And while I've sometimes fallen short of that intention, I live with a huge anxiety during the times that I do fall short. If I skip a week of the pop, if I skip a week of publishing a podcast, I'm always anxious and guilty until the next episode goes up. Well, as you know, we've at the end of October, we created a donation platform so that listeners could support the show. And that has really intensified my sense of obligation and anxiety to produce consistent and quality content. And at times, I've really kind of felt handcuffed by external variables, no matter how good my intentions are. So even if I've done all my prep work, I'll run into scheduling conflicts with Scott or a given guest, and we'll have to reschedule, oftentimes repeatedly. And I don't want to throw anybody under the bus by name, but there's been legitimately five people, kind of A-listers, whom I've emailed with for three years back and forth, and they've agreed to be a guest on the show. They're avid listeners of this show, so maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but... um, You know, as with professional surf industry types, everyone's always on the road. So their schedules are constantly in flux. So while they sincerely want to come on the show, they also sincerely have scheduling conflicts regularly. So anyway, as I sit under this new, this weight of this new commitment to the content, I've also kind of realized that I don't need guests as much as I think that I do. And I'm not really, I don't need to feel encumbered by anyone else's schedule. I have plenty to discuss about surfing that I actually rarely get to on this show. Some of it gets discussed when Scott and I do our surf news shows every other week. And I discuss some of it in the show intros. But the vast majority of my commentary on surfing never really gets discussed here on this platform, which is kind of surprising. I've always really felt like the guests on Surf Splendor were the reason that listeners were listening. So my job as the host was to just tee up good stories and to stay out of the way as much as possible. And I really, I think that I'll maintain that posture as the interviewer moving forward with Surf Splendor. But I also think that there's space on this podcast for me to provide some more nuanced commentary on the ongoings of our sport. 
I've been listening to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. He's an author you might be familiar with. Uh, he wrote American Psycho, which was actually one of my favorite books, or is one of my favorite books, certainly of the last few years that I've read. But he's also a huge film buff and to some degree a film critic. And on his podcast, he offers this really detailed, nuanced critique on film. And it really got me thinking, surfing doesn't have an authoritative surf critic. The closest thing that we have, I mean, other than what Scott and I do here, is the comments section on Stab Magazine and now on Beach Grit, which, by the way, they're fantastic entertainment. And in those little worlds, certain anonymous commentators or commenters have emerged as being the most popular and while insightful, they're mostly just comedic and very brief, and they're really limited in their nuance. We all have always loved the power rankings critique. Um, they're doing them on Surfline now pretty much after every event. Actually, kind of sporadically, not every event. But those power rankings are a great version of a critic of surfing, a critique of surfing. Most notably by... Lewis Samuels was, of course, one of our favorite critics. Derek Hind was always great back in the day. So, I don't know. Does surfing need an authoritative voice to weigh in on professional surfers' style, their competitive prowess, their shortcomings? Maybe to point out the unsung heroes? It'd be narcissistic for me to appoint myself to such a position. I'm certainly not the best surfer in the world, so who am I to criticize... I don't know, Adriano's Bronco stance. Um, he's doing moves and bottom turns and getting shacked in ways that I never, ever will. But I'm still critical of that guy's stance and that guy's style, you know? And there's certainly much more qualified critics than I. But do any of them have a microphone and a listenership? If you want to hear my commentary on or analysis on the upcoming Pipe Masters event, Stick around to about the 35-minute mark of this show. Until then, Rob Colby is the guest for this first half of our show today. Rob was a lifer at Quicksilver, or so he thought. That was until the economy upended even the most stable of businesses. His current project is Need Essentials. You probably heard Scott and I discuss our new wetsuits in episode 143. It was an unsponsored product review. He and I had each purchased the wetsuit for full price without knowing the other person had. And then while we were on the air, we connected the dots and we both raved about how much we liked our new wetsuits and the great price that we purchased them for. Before I pitch my conversation, or before I pitch to my conversation with Rob, I'll just give you a quick overview on the concept behind his brand, Need Wetsuits. The wetsuits are manufactured to the same specs, materials, and technique as premium wetsuits made by any brand that you're familiar with, and they're actually made in the exact same factory as a lot of those brands. So it's the same quality wetsuit, but they sell for about half the price. Need is able to sell them so inexpensively because they're only available direct through their website, so there's no middleman. They don't advertise anywhere, so there's no advertising expense. Up until recently, they only had a very narrow, focused product line, just black wetsuits, no colors, no options. There's no logos. It doesn't say need anywhere on the wetsuit. They don't, they don't even have hang tags on the wetsuits for price tags or product info. They just come labelless, very, very simple, black wetsuits, high quality, no frills, sold at a low price. I don't know what more you would want as the consumer. So that's all you need to know. Rob will give you his backstory and more details about need. And by the way, this conversation was recorded at Rob's office a couple of weeks ago. So our chat that we opened up this conversation with about Dane Reynolds' film Chapter 11 is a little bit outdated now. But if you want my detailed thoughts on that film, you can listen to last week's episode. So without further ado... Here is my conversation with Rob Colby. Night, 
didn't actually get to watch Dane's video yet. I saw that it hit last night, and then today I had, like, while I was eating lunch, I had enough time to watch a video, and I went with John John's new installation of his series 12. They just dropped episode 5. Only because it was one-third the length of Dane's. I'd rather watch Dane's, but I didn't have 30 minutes. How is it? How's Dane's? Dane's is it's amazing. Is it? Yeah, I, um, I just watched it this morning. Um, and I, you know, because of my background at Quicksilver, it was, um, it was, it was, it was fun to watch because I remember a lot of the sort of historical footage, you know? Yeah. Um, but I also was really stoked to see how he's surfing right now. It's, it's amazing. Is he surfing amazingly? Killing it. Really? Absolutely killing it. Okay. And is so fun to watch and free and, and just big. Everything he does is big and powerful. And I don't mean, and, and he looks fit, you know, but Good. it was cool to see. Good. Yeah, so there's out. archival footage in it too? Tons. Okay, cool. When he was a little kid. Stuff that you've seen before though, or? Yeah, a lot of stuff I haven't seen though. Okay. Yeah. That's what I want to see. Yeah. Interesting. So the reason why, now that the mics are on, that we were talking even about that video is that, um, why don't you reset the topic for us? We were talking about need and how... You know, you don't have a focus on team riders. You don't have a team. But at the same time, you watch Dane and you're like, dang, that does inspire me to surf. Seeing somebody shred does inspire me to surf. So how did we get into that conversation? Or tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the the thought behind need and the thought behind not having a team. And what was the general concept? Yeah, I mean, we so Ryan and I, um, Ryan's uh, the founder of the brand of need and or the company. and is based down in Australia. And he and I both grew up working for Quicksilver. Okay. Um, and, you know, both grew up surfing contests and doing that whole thing. And, and always, you know, we were, we benefited from this idea of having a team and loved it, you know, and it was a big part of my upbringing, you know, being part of Quicksilver, um, from 13 until I was 21 or 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I love that. I worked there, you know, for many, many years and watched, you know, the idea of a team, which, you know, in the very beginning was a family, you know, and this like little shared identity turn into, you know, these giant multi-million dollar contracts. And, um, and that was, um, it was awesome because they, they were, we were able to pay that because these businesses were getting bigger and bigger and were successful. Um, but I always felt like, um, you know, the, the, the bigger we, the company got and the bigger the contracts got, the more they became business deals instead of like real endorsements of, hey, right. I love these board shorts, which is how Quicksilver started. Quicksilver started because MR and PT and all these guys and Sean Tom, they loved Quicksilver board shorts. And, and a lot of times they'd buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Ryan and I you know, always thought, you know what, it'd be cool to kind of have something where people just believe in a business and want to support it because they believe in the business and, and specifically in the product and what it does for them. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question perfectly or maybe meandering a bit, but mm-hmm. we wanted to build something that people really liked, uh, for what it was. And, and so that led to a conversation around, Hey, if, if you have to pay someone to use something, you know, maybe that's not exactly what we're going for, you know? Mm. So let's find friends who really like things. Let's find customers who really like the things that we're making. And if they tell their friends, then you could build a nice little business, just like a local surf shop built a nice little business and has, you know, in Mm -hmm. Seal Beach Harbor Surfboards has done that for 40 or 50 years, you know? Well, the website is Need Essentials and I was introduced to it as a wetsuit brand, but as you and I have been talking, there's obviously other products in the line. Was wetsuits uh, the original focus, the sole focus, or was it originally intended to be more encompassing? It was definitely the sole focus. Okay. Yeah, and when Ryan um, started it, um, he he didn't he he had a feeling that you know um, building a, a you know, a really high quality product and then taking out half of the cost structure would be attractive to people, but he didn't know how big it'd be, you okay. know? And when he was starting this, when he was prototyping everything down in Australia, it was, you know, 2013, I guess. And 
it, it was a different market than it is today. Mm. You didn't have Dollar Shave Club and Casper Mattress and all those things. Right. Yeah. So what was the concept specifically? Concept was let's make a really premium wetsuit. Um, let's strip out all the landfill, as he calls it. So, mm. uh, you know, any of the stuff that doesn't add value to the performance of the product, whether it's packaging or hang tags or, um, you know, needless marketing, mumbo jumbo, whatever it may be that you know, it's kind of just wasted effort and expense. Let's cut that out. And I, I want to be careful here because I don't want to say that having amazing surfers wearing your stuff isn't, it's, it's important, you know, um, as long as it's for the right reasons. Sure. Um, but cut out all the stuff that isn't adding value to you going surfing yeah. in a really high quality product. Yeah. And that's where it came from. Okay. Um, so what that translates to essentially is an equivalent quality product is what we're used to as surfers from premium brands for under $200, basically. Yeah. I mean, th- let me give you an example of a way that we would mark up a product traditionally through a normal retail um, relationship. You build a product for $10, bucks, um, you land it for $12, um, you wholesale it for 24 and you retail it for 48 or 50. Um, and so you have this product that you paid $12 for that a consumer is paying um, uh, 50 bucks for. You yep. know? And the markup between the wholesale and the retail is one of those things that really, it, I mean, it doubles the price. Yeah. Um, and, and, it always, and it always was a, a point of access for surfers. You go into a surf shop and you get a guy who knows how to get you in the right wetsuit or on the right surfboard, it's totally worth it, right? We're in an age now where a lot of people, they already know how to do that. They don't need that level of service. Yeah. They trust their own uh, knowledge of the product that they need, and they're willing to take a chance on a little company like ours mm-hmm. to say, hey, I know what those guys are making, or I've heard from someone who knows that they make a quality product, uh, and I get to cut out uh, something that, um, maybe someone who's just starting surfing would really value, right? And instead, um, take that 150 or 200 bucks and put it toward a new board or a surf trip or whatever. Another you know, wetsuit, going out to dinner. Another oh, wetsuit. I'll take two instead <laughs> yeah. of one. So no, but it's funny you say that because that, as I was outlining uh, this conversation, I start going down the path of like, let's discuss wetsuit construction, and then I realize it's pointless. Everybody listening to this is a wetsuit expert. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we've all been wearing wetsuits for 20 years or whatever, and we yeah. know what we expect. I don't need you to tell me about wetsuit construction at this point. Uh, but why don't you tell me where where are the wetsuits produced? Where do they come from? They're produced in Thailand. Um, okay. There's a factory called Shaco that does um, most of the of the the biggest brands high end production. Okay. Um, they're they're excellent at what they do. They're innovative with materials and construction, um, and they're a really amazing partner um and so they they i'm actually headed there next week um they build our suits they are a vertical operation so they do everything yep um cool so it's the same material and the same quality of suits that basically are being produced yeah um, for a lot of different brands yeah i i think there are different tiers of suits out there the the volume of of business is done in the sub $200 category. Uh, and, and every brand, um, every major brand tends to have a wetsuit in that, uh, sure. in that price range. And, um, those, those suits aren't typically made there. So okay. they're made somewhere else. Okay. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the really, um, well-marketed suits that have all the technology in them are, are typically made there. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my experience growing up wearing wetsuits was, Every year, each company releases their new line of suits, and they all essentially have the same construction, just different marketing terms attached to it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and I hadn't ever worked in the business, but that was just my interpretation of it as a kid. No, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, and, and that's, you know, that's part of, I think Nike probably pioneered it. It's this sort of innovation mindset. And mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, innovation, um, 
is uh, there, you know, there, there's real innovation and then there's kind of faux innovation. Yeah. Um, and there's straight talk and then there's marketing talk. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to be a straight talker and we're trying to not also waste money or, or um, spend experimental, experimental money on things that we don't know are going to work. You know, right. Um, so we may be essentially behind the times by a year or two, you know, um, but we're going to pick the things that work in order to make sure that we're not, um, you know, blowing the bank on things that aren't necessarily going to benefit a surfer. Sure. Makes sense. It does. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate that. I think if the original focus and your end goal is always that uh, retail price point that you guys are at, you'll always have a customer base like that was the big selling point for me that's in it's funny because i i've thought about that a lot i and when i initially was talking to ryan about doing this up here you know that's what i that's what gripped me i said gosh this is a crazy value for people so you have to be successful but one of the things that i've really learned is that it's probably more important to offer really good customer service and really you know like get to know your customers and listen to them and and give them what they need and when they need it. Um, that, that to me has been even more, um, important and actually more fun than just going in and saying, Oh, we've got a, you know, we're the low price leader, you know, which the race to the bottom thing doesn't end well for anybody, obviously, but it's funny to see that as, um, retail changes and the world shifts, business changes with technology and everything, there are fundamental business truths that haven't changed yeah. at all. Whether it's Uber or a brick and mortar store, it's like, like you said, customer service, mm-hmm. quality product, competitive pricing. Yeah. You don't need the lowest price, you need competitive pricing. But yeah. if you have those three things, whether it is tech or brick and mortar, it's like and I think customer's being, value. Yeah, being honest with people about what they're paying for is important. I think people consumers are getting a heck of a lot smarter and they have come to expect that. You know, there are so many companies now that will tell you if it's Casper mattress, like they'll tell you if you're buying a Tempur-Pedic mattress, it's going to cost you $3,000. Yeah. And here's where 2,500 of it goes, mm-hmm. you know? And, and if you buy it from us, it's going to cost you 900. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that because consumers have come to expect that, um, you know, I start, I stopped buying Gillette razors. <laughs> the other oh, I know. Day, you yeah. Know? Like Harry's, I'm into it. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't tried them, but I've been on the Dollar Shave Club for like a year. Yeah. It's pretty good. They're not the best, but for the price, you can't beat them. That's crazy. Um, Do you have a Casper mattress? (laughs) No, I haven't bought one of those. I have a Tempur-Pedic. I'm such an idiot. Okay. Because I've heard the Casper uh, (laughs) commercials on podcasts that I've been listening to, and I want to get one. My friend started a company called Lull, and he's like, he, you know, he's he's doing essentially the same thing, but yeah. it's it's crazy like you know every single category of product so it's razors or it's warby parker with glasses or it's mm-hmm. you know canyon with really high-end you know road bikes and so there's there's something in each um and and we have competitors too in, in wetsuits like we have there are a couple that are you know direct only and you know i'm sure there are going to be more yeah um, and it's just kind of i think it's going to be a, just a different way to to shop for a wetsuit or a you know whatever else we end up offering. I have one technical question about construction. Um, one complaint. It's not even a complaint, to be honest. I've just accepted it. And maybe you heard Scott and I talking about this on the show last week, mm-hmm. which is just I expect to get one season out of a wetsuit, yeah. you know, and it is what it is. But then I same thing goes with surfboards, by the way. It's like yeah. I expect them to destruct, yeah. you know, yeah. Um should we accept that as consumers? Is there a way to improve upon it? What are your thoughts? What are the advancements that can be made in the products? For durability? Sure. I yeah. think that um, I, was, I was actually talking to a, to a guy on the phone about this today. Um, when, when you want the lightest surfboard, you're going to sacrifice you know, strength uh, in order to get buoyancy and that sort of that feel that... Yeah. Uh, that comes with it and, and the thing's going to fall apart. Right. So same thing happens with wetsuits when you want a really light weight, flexible wetsuit, which, you know, certain guys do. I always have loved that, you know, but, 
um, it, it falls apart, you know, and then there are other variables like how you care for it. You know, are you washing it out with fresh water? Are you drying it, you know, out of the direct sunlight? So they're different. Are you, you know, running around on an asphalt parking lot with it, you know, still right. stuck to your, to your heels? Um, we, we tried to kind of find the middle ground with our materials where we would have a really flexible, lightweight, warm wetsuit with premium rubber, but um, also not give away the durability that you may give away when you buy a Japanese suit, for instance, because they're the most, it's the most beautiful foam and jersey you've ever had, but you know, you, you wear it for a season, the thing's blown apart, yeah. um, even if you care for it impeccably. So I think we're trying to walk the line between having a suit that is that has that kind of like that feel, that supple feel of a really high end suit, but it's still going to be durable. It isn't going to, isn't going to, you know, completely break the bank. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. But, but our goal isn't to make the most durable suit in the world. It's mm-hmm. to make a really high performing suit that a really good surfer will put on someone who's worn the best wetsuits, excels and rip curls and whatnot, and knows how good a wetsuit can feel mm-hmm. and is going to put this thing on and go, Oh, that feels just like it. Or, you know, or is comparable in this way or that way. So yeah. we, we want that feeling to be the same. Um, so why was the decision made to expand beyond expand the product line beyond wetsuits? Um, I guess most importantly, <laughs> we all you like Ryan and I use these products, and we like making stuff technical products that we use and that we're passionate about, and that we know how to make and that we know how to market. So. I wouldn't go right now and make mattresses because I have no idea how to make mattresses. I don't care about mattresses. I don't know how to market them. Yeah. Um, but these are products that, you know, anything that we get into, you know, I'm looking at traction pads right here, and it's something that I care about, that we know how to make, that we know how to market, that um, is important to the consumer that we have. And so we're trying to um, just go into categories that we care about you yeah know? so what sense? what are those categories well jackets is the first one that we're doing so we did the three layer shell um we did a, a 750 goose down parka and then a lightweight um insulator that you know as a as sort of a kit would be everything you'd need for really severe conditions on the mountain but it's also something you could wear walking around the city in the rain yeah um well the shell is at least or yeah. getting on a boat and, you know, being in foul weather. So, um, yeah, so that's that's the first thing that we're doing. And, and you know, we'll see. I mean, we're tiny and we're, um, and we're, we're writing these POs out of our personal bank accounts. So that's been the other constraint. Yeah. Is that, you know, when we order something, we don't order many of them. And we see if they work. And if they work, then we'll, we'll figure out how to buy more of them with the, you know, with whatever we, you know, are able to sell. So you're based in Southern California. You said Ryan is based in Australia. Yeah. So are are the products and wetsuits available elsewhere in the world? Yeah. So Australia has the wetsuits and the board shorts, and and um, they have women's wetsuits and are working on kids' wetsuits as well down there. Um, up here, we have the wetsuit range, the, uh, one of the board short styles, and then the jacket range that just landed like. I mean, literally on Friday. Oh, okay, um, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got in the last two days, I've gotten emails from New Zealand and Hong Kong. Are they? Can those listeners buy them and have them shipped? Or they, yeah, they can okay. for sure. Cool. Um, uh, the Ryan and his his little crew down in Oz has uh, shipped to New Zealand. Perfect. Um, we don't have any shipping to Asia right now. Okay. Um, but we have um, a partner in the UK who ships throughout okay. uh, the EU. And, um, and But again, he's just getting started just like we are. Yeah, well, to be honest, I think the first time I checked the website, there wasn't a U.S. component to it. Is that possible? For sure. Yeah, yeah. okay. Because I do remember looking at it maybe a year ago or something, yeah. and I was like – uh, did did Stab Magazine maybe write an yeah. article about him? Yeah. Oh. Okay. That was my first tr- introduction. No, we um, we got our first little shipment, um, which we we kind of peeled off of an Australian shipment. And Ryan was um, he was just giving us like a little test order. Okay. That was in February okay. of this year, and it was gone 
it was tiny, but it yeah. was gone in a couple of weeks, and then we didn't get another replenishment of inventory until mid-April, um, and we've kind of we've been in business since mid-April. That's yeah. kind of how I describe it. Yeah. Know? One more question. Um, back to the Dane Reynolds video, and you know, developing those relationships with team riders at Quicksilver over the years, and watching their salaries grow to millions of dollars, which was unimaginable when I was a kid. You know. Yeah. Um, I wonder the I often wonder the equitability of those relationships, and I have a to imagine you've wondered that too. Once you're getting to that range, like you know, let's not talk your former employers. Let's just look at John John with Hurley. Yeah, is that an equitable relationship for the brand? I mean, it certainly is for John John. I would think, but um, how, you know, obviously, it's impossible to quantify the value of an athlete to a company. So it is kind of an art at that point. Just what is somebody willing to pay for the piece of art? You know, but what, what are your thoughts on it? That's a good question. Um, when I started surfing for quick, when I was 13 or 14, it was a $3 million business, um, based out of Costa Mesa and like a little 4,000 square foot warehouse. And, um, and you know, my dad would always look at me and he's like, why do you want to do this? Why don't you play golf or tennis or, you know, or baseball or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and the lowest priced golfer, <laughs> the lowest paid pro golfer will yeah. make more than the and best pro surfer. Yeah, he yeah. just was looking at it. And it was tiny. It was a tiny little business. Yeah. And I'm like, Dad, I really like this. And and then we would laugh at each other a little bit when he'd show up at my office and I'm wearing jeans and a T-shirt and he's in a suit. And right. it's a $2 billion business. So I think that people like Kelly Slater um, and Lisa Anderson – at my former employer um, were huge, you know, and the, and the products that were uh, huge in driving growth um, and very equitable, right? Like, if anything, they were underpaid, you know, for the for the, the growth that they helped drive. But there are also some really talented people at those companies, you know, behind those brands. I, I could name a million amazing people that drove the growth of those businesses alongside great athlete relationships. Right. And at some point, you know, maybe the scales tipped a little bit in the, in the, in favor of the athletes, you know, I think every sport probably feels that at some point where Mm -hmm. there's like this, you know, like the, the scales swing and, you know, now it's not equitable. And I think when that happens, um, you're kind of probably seeing it right now that, you know, they're, a lot it feels like there are a lot fewer pro surfers out there and there definitely are a lot fewer in the you know kind of making three or four thousand dollars a month type range you know where you could be a journeyman pro and and live a good life traveling surfing doing the qs shooting photos doing what you're going to do yeah living a charmed life you know right um so are they equitable it's very hard to say do the, are those guys critical to the sort of advancement of the sport and what, I mean, what Kelly and all the, that generation did for, you know, the growth of that business? I, I think it was certainly equitable then. I couldn't agree with that more. Lisa and Kelly are the best examples of it, I would yeah. think, with any brand where they were just um, – synonymous with the brand, you know, and, yeah. and I agree with you, probably underpaid for a lot of those years, but Quicksilver, I'm sure paid them what they could, you know, as yeah. they were a growing company. No, and they so, did fine. I mean, of course. Yeah. But I also realized, I remember when Kelly left quick, I mean, my very first thought was what does quick really have to offer him at this point? Like Kelly's brand is just as large and recognizable as Quicksilver's brand. Really? You know, I mean, Kelly is a person. Yeah. 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 Kelly, just his brand as a person. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So he can take that wherever he wants and do whatever he wants with it, whether it is clothing company, energy, drink, whatever, you know, wave pools. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he has, you know, and I mean, and I think he's actually done an incredible job. It's like, absolutely. Dude, he'll be providing the waves and the board and the drink and the clothing for all of us in 10 years from now, you know, in theory. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, He's got a good vision. Yeah. So, um, but I got to say, I think that Need Essentials has, as uh, that pendulum has shifted and kind of the scale is tipped where maybe some of those top tier relationships aren't equitable anymore, that creates kind of a, a different gap somewhere else in the market where I think Need is filling perfectly, which is like, no, 
no team, no frills, just blacked out suits, no logos, and giving you best quality product yeah. for the price. No, and that I mean that's the that's the goal for sure. But you know, I have a, you know I, I have a bunch of friends who we sponsored who I talk to a lot, and I say, okay, you know, you have a you have a ton of reach. Like you talk to a lot of different people, and people believe in you, and I believe in you, and you've got a maybe you're not getting paid x amount from your sponsor anymore mm-hmm. on a you know on a fixed basis but if there are other ways for us to make a living together let's try and figure it out because i think that's a lot of what it's about as well ryan said it to me right away he was like hey rob it would be really cool if you could you know make a living doing this and i could have have gone and started a, an apparel company and sold the wholesale and done this out and the other thing the, the way that i was trained to do it but this is a whole new thing for me. And it was, that was Ryan's like, he, he gets, he feels good about that, you know? And I feel good about that, that this is a way for, for someone to make a living or a group of people to make a living. And so I'd like for that to be the case with, I'll fill in the blank, but you know, guys that I've worked with in the past that I like working with that, you know, have, that should be compensated for what they do. You yep. know? Does that make sense? Compensated fairly, but not grotesquely. Yeah. But exactly. you do it as partners. You don't do it as... Exactly. I'm on board, dude. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> anyway. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for taking the time. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Needessentials.com is their website. I'm, of course, a huge fan. Rob actually gave me uh, their lightest weight jacket, and I've been wearing it nonstop in the past two weeks. I absolutely love it. Check them out. Tell them I sent you when you check out um, at the shopping cart. They'll be thrilled to know that. And um, I'm going to get into my pre-Pipe Master show. The Pipe Masters begins on December 8th. It's the third jewel of the Triple Crown and the final event of the WSL's championship tour. It's held at one of the world's most famous and death-defying surf spots, Pipeline. Numerous people have died there. B. Durbich broke his pelvic bone in his heat last year and had to sit out the entire 2016 season, except actually this final event. It looks like he's on the roster Um so that's kind of cool. I know he surfed in the Triple Crown events, and he looked good, but he's going to be showing up at Pipeline, the spot that put him out of commission. 
I don't know if you remember, um, I think it was a 2012 event. Lori Towner actually dislocated his shoulder two times in one heat. He came to the beach, had it reset, and then paddled back out, had another horrific wipeout, and then dislocated it again. So people get injured all the time. Last year, Evan Geiselman was found floating unconscious after pulling into a closeout barrel at pipe. Thankfully, he was found by bodyboarder Andre Botha, who not only rescued Evan and got him to the beach, but then helped revive him on shore. Thankfully, Evan has made a full recovery since that event and is actually now sitting 19th on the QS rating. So in a right outside qualification, but might qualify for the 2018 tour based on his seating going into the 2017 year. Owen Wright suffered a severe concussion at Pipeline last year simply from duck diving. He got three truly amazing waves in one session. Everyone agreed that he was the standout performer that day, but while paddling back out, he got caught inside during a set and simply duck diving the set caused a concussion so severe that he has yet to fully recover. He's taken the entire year off from professional surfing, and I hate to speculate with something so kind of grim, and I don't know anyone near Owen's camp, but the silence about his progress is deafening. And I love Owen surfing, and I'm really eager to see him return to full health again, but Remains to be seen. And on a lighter note, he and his girlfriend just yesterday actually welcomed their first child into the world. So there's a little silver lining there. Congratulations to the rights. And actually, his younger sister, Tyler, secured her first world title this year on the women's side of the WSL Tour. So much to be celebrated in the Wright family. Um, A quick side note about concussions, by the way. On Surf Splendor Episode 140... I interviewed big wave surfer Kyle Tierman, and Kyle has since launched his own podcast, and he he did an interview recently with big wave surfer Sean Dollar. Much of that hour-long discussion is about Sean Dollar's various concussions that he suffered from big wave surfing, and about the interesting kind of experimental treatments that he's undergoing to improve his condition. It's a really eye-opening and scary conversation. Head trauma is obviously no joke, and um, I think pro NFLers have begun to really shine a light on that subject matter. And there really seems to be direct correlations between concussions and mental illness, um, depression, bipolar disorder, and even suicide. So really scary stuff that can change your life in a split second. And it's really worth informing yourself on. And Kyle's conversation with Sean, I think sheds a lot of light. So that's episode number five of the Kyle Tierman show. I'll have a link to it in today's show notes on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Anyway, back to the pipe masters. It's treachery is often concealed by the slick camera angles and production that the WSL provides. Double John, Kelly, Gabriel, they all make it look so easy that you think that you could actually surf it. Well, you can't. You're quickly reminded that you can't when you see B. Derbich, a world-class surfer, a former pipe master, leaving the beach on a stretcher last year. It is the real deal, and not only do we get to see the best surfers surfing it with only one other competitor, but we get to see surfers who really don't have that much experience at Pipeline, world tour surfers who don't spend a lot of time at Pipe, throwing themselves over the ledge on 10-footers because their requalification depends on it. Or because they know the entire surf world is watching and they'll be humiliated if they don't go. It is a spectacle. It's kind of a gladiator-esque elimination. So I want to start my conversation today with the guys who will risk humiliation by backing out of waves. Other than the absolute top performers, these are often the most interesting stories for me while watching the Pipe Masters. These guys who are under pressure to either re-qualify or simply to prove themselves... Number one on that list for me is Felipe Toledo. Felipe cowered on the shoulder of low-tide Chopu last year while his competitor Idolo Ferrer repeatedly got shacked and then came out and smashed the end section at Chopu over dry reef. And again, Felipe was just sitting on the shoulder, not even trying to get waves. So he apparently had an elbow injury, but 
the critics suggested that it wasn't severe enough that he actually couldn't surf. And had he been surfing four foot snapper or lowers, he would have certainly have gotten to his feet and put up a fight against Idolo. So he was a really huge question mark going into pipeline last year. And while he did get a couple of waves in his heat, he still looked really tentative to me and was ultimately beaten by wild card Mason Ho. Felipe is arguably the best surfer or the best small wave surfer in the world. He's a fierce competitor and he seems like he's a sincerely good human being. So I'm not here just to bash Felipe, but the reality is he will never be world champ unless he can surf large barreling left reef breaks. And then there's a giant chasm, by the way, between just surfing large barreling left uh, reef breaks versus mastering them like Kelly and John John have. The mastery of those waves is reserved for very, very few. And honestly, I don't think Felipe will ever get to that level of mastery in those style of waves. I do believe that he can at least get to a level of adequacy you know, a level where he's willing to swing on any wave that comes at pipe. You know, that's where Adriano is at. Adriano is a pipe master, and so full credit where it's due. But he doesn't have the level of mastery that Kelly and John John have, the level of comfort, you know. So I think Felipe can get to where Adrian is. I don't think he'll ever master the spot. So Felipe has a very, very long way to go. And really truthfully, I think the most revealing detail about all of this is that his hurdle seems to be fear. That's it. So if fear is the thing that's holding him back, I'm not sure if that actually means that he'll be able to overcome it or if it means that he will always be hindered by it, regardless of talent level. Remains to be seen, but again, creates for exciting watching. For the record, I'm predicting a round two exit by Felipe with his only hope of getting passed around to really just being sneaky backdoor rights. Number two on my list of guys with something to prove at Pipeline this year is Matt Wilkinson. I've been a pretty vocal critic of Matt Wilkinson's early season world title campaign, and I'm feeling slightly vindicated, although saddened, to see him fall apart in the second half of the year. Wilco has undeniable raw talent, and he seems to be able to focus that in short bursts. And it seems that his mental focus could be attributed to his coach, Glenn Hall, who has in one year become arguably the most successful surf coach of all time by simultaneously coaching Tyler Wright to her world title. I really think that Wilco's strongest asset is his rapid-fire backhand attack in head-high rights. It's really radical. He has this really tight turning radius both off the bottom and then through the top. And he goes beyond vert when he goes off the top. And then he gets his tail to slide in really contorted, unexpected angles. He offers a variety where no other backside surfers can. Just a lot of different turns, a lot of different maneuvers from a lot of different angles. And He's definitely gotten a few huge left barrels over the years, some of which in competition, most notably at Chopu three years ago, where he finished in the semis. But even there, in his post-seed interview, he openly admitted how scared he was. And I love that candor from Wilco. I think that it shows a lot of personality and... Um, a lot of personality and kind of candidness that we don't get out of other competitors. But I think that it also shows a giant kink in his ability to win a world title or to fit in with other world title holders. I don't believe that Wilco thinks that he's the best surfer in the world. And I think Glenn Hall can psych him up to believe that he's the best maybe backside surfer at snapper on the day of the finals when it's bumpy and shoulder high in that moment. Wilco thinks he's the best surfer in those conditions, but I don't think he thinks he's the best surfer in the world. And I don't think that he even thinks he's the best surfer at Pipeline. And no amount of prompting from Glenn Hall can give Wilco that delusion. I don't think Wilco thinks that he's even in the top 10 list of surfers at Pipeline. So what does this amount to? I don't know, maybe a round five finish, maybe a round three finish. I suppose it depends on who he draws. 
it's just important to contrast that thought with the mindset of John John or Kelly, who know without a shadow of a doubt that they are the best surfers at Pipeline. And not only do they know it, they've repeatedly proven it by getting the best waves ever surfed at Pipeline. Or honestly, perhaps a better contrast from Wilco is Gabriel Medina who not only believes that he's the best surfer on any given day anywhere that he paddles out, including Pipeline, but he also believes that in a given session, he's going to surf a wave better than anyone else has ever surfed a wave at that spot. And to be honest, he's often right. Wilco has talent. He now has a few results, but he has a lot, lot more proving to do, namely at spots like Pipeline. The world title pressure is off. John John's our champion. But Wilco could really reassert himself and validate his place as a title contender by winning Pipeline. Sadly, I don't think he's mentally conditioned for it. And I'm predicting a round three exit. Um, other guys who deserve kind of a place in this conversation, a place on this list... Stu Kennedy needs to prove himself, Matt Banning, Kanoa Igarashi, Connor Coffin to a certain degree. And I think we could see fire, uh, fireworks from Jadson Andre just based off the recent energy that he's shown by requalifying through the Triple Crown events at um, Holly Eva and more notably at Sunset. Anyway, moving on. I'm going to give you my dark horse pick, some other notables that you should watch out for, and then my top two contenders for the Pipe Masters. Let's start with my dark horse pick for this event. My dark horse pick is Keanu Asing. I was very tempted to pick Wiggly Dantes or even Kayo Abelli on a way outside chance. But honestly, I think Keanu is the better pick. Keanu has experience at Pipeline. He won one event already this year, his first event, so he knows the feeling. Um, he's a very, very tenacious competitor. I mean, really, a ne- he has a next-level kind of tenacity when it comes to competition. He's outside the cut line for requalification in 2017 at 23rd position, which I think can work against a lot of surfers being outside the cut and feeling the pressure, but I think that it actually works to motivate Keanu. He often delivers his finest performances when under pressure. We saw him originally qualify under a lot of pressure at sunset, I think it was two years ago, with a buzzer beater heat. And then we saw him stomp the craziest alley-oop last year in Brazil against Gabriel Medina in his heat, where Gabriel's by far the favored surfer. He was en route to win his world title that year. And uh, Gabriel's known for doing insane airs and insane alley-oops. Keanu isn't, but Keanu's the guy that stomped the craziest air that year, or one of the craziest airs that year. He also just lost his main sponsor, Fox, as they've eliminated their entire surf program. So Keanu, he has essentially no free surfing career to speak of. It's not like the guy goes on free surf trips and puts out banger edits. All of his eggs are in his competitive basket. So again, needing a result for requalification his entire career as a surfer is on the line with this one event. He drew Jordy Smith and a yet-to-be-named wild card in round, in round one, so it's a really difficult draw. But I think Keanu will come in swinging. His backhand is incredible, um, but I think he'll also be eager to go at backdoor. So his style of surfing isn't the most exciting, but his work ethic, his humility, and his heart are huge are a huge attribute to the world tour and i'd be sad to see him go for those reasons and i think everybody would i think the tour could really use him hashtag heart over height go keanu i'm predicting keanu gets a quarterfinals finish believe it or not and thereby requalifies for the tour but even his tenacity can't really overcome the likes of top pipe specialists so quarterfinals will be a really great result for him I don't think he can beat the guys, you know, the top, I don't know, eight surfers at pipe. So I think we'll see him bow out in the quarterfinals. But I'm rooting for you, Keanu. A couple of other notables that are worth watching in this event. Joel Parkinson, Kelly Slater. But for entirely different reasons than you might expect. I think Parko is going to bag a really great result. And perhaps some of the most memorable waves of the event, even. He got one a couple days ago in the free surf at backdoor that 
was just a great reminder and actually is the reason why I put him on this list. Maybe that's a no-brainer. I think, obviously, he's a former world champ, and he's a pipe masters, and he's currently ranked number eight in the world. So maybe I'm an idiot for even saying that he's going to do well. It's super obvious. But to be honest, he's kind of gone unnoticed in recent years, and he used to be a perennial top five guy while simultaneously, by the way, producing memorable video parts and memorable single waves and even memorable single maneuvers. But he's been absent from all of those realms in recent years. He's been easily overshadowed by Felipe, Gabriel, Idolo, and then in the rail in the rail game, he's been overshadowed by Jordy Smith, Julian, Mick, I mean, a number of other people I, that come to mind. So that said, what Parco lacks in excitement, freshness, and maybe innovation, he more than makes up for in experience and specifically experience in really good, dangerous waves. He actually has a comfort at backdoor and pipe that very few people have ever possessed anywhere. And I think that he's going to um, just put on a really dazzling display of that style that we never really get to see from other surfers. So I'm claiming semifinals finish from Parco, and I think it'll be done with more style than any other semifinalist. And again, rooting for you, Parco. Now, Kelly Slater. I'm so saddened to report that I think Kelly Slater will underperform this year at Pipe. Yes, he's the best surfer ever at Pipeline and the most winning surfer at Pipeline, and I do think he has the physical, mental, and emotional ability to win the event. I just don't think he has the focus required at this given moment. It's the same argument that I've made in recent years on this podcast for why he hasn't been a world title contender. In past years, he's needed to outwit and outfocus one or two worthy competitors, you know, really worthy of world title contention. Andy Irons, Mick Fanning, for example. But now there are five plus legitimate contenders to dethrone Kelly in any variety of conditions. They're five different guys all the time. At Snapper, it's Felipe, Idolo, Wilco, Gabriel. Then you go to Bells and it's Jordy, Julian, Mick. Then you go to Pipeline. It's John John, Gabriel, Joel, and now recent pipe masters, Adriano, Julian Wilson. Not to mention the wild cards who are all super legitimate threats at Pipeline. So more importantly though, I think Kelly's focus is deferred outside of competition, and that's really what matters more. His wave pool, perps, outer known, KS designs, his retirement timeline, his legacy. We all know that he has ego. He couldn't get to where he is now without ego. And these young bucks seem to be forcing him into retirement, essentially, unwillingly. He's getting pushed down the rankings each year. So he's currently in ninth place, and he is, of course, I have to always give him credit like he's synonymous with the word pipe master and you know it's all very impressive his record's undeniable but keep in mind he's only won the pipe masters twice in the past 17 years 2008 and 2013 his performance at chopu this year was one of the most impressive sophisticated dominant displays of surfing that i've ever seen and it also reminded us that when the waves are actually good and challenging is when Kelly really elevates his game uh, and actually performs on a level that's really untouchable by anyone else. He's on, his, on an entirely different level when the waves are good and challenging. So yes, he's liable to do that again at pipe, especially if the waves are good. I just personally think that the drive and the desire that he had to reestablish his dominance... He showcased that in, in Tahiti, and that drive really hasn't quite reconstituted yet. There's no title race. He has plenty of extracurricular distraction. There are no less than five aforementioned surfers whose entire existence is focused on winning this event. And while I believe that Kelly can beat each of those individual surfers in a given heat, I think that his guard will be down in at least one of those heats, or perhaps maybe just for five minutes of one of those heats, or maybe just for one priority paddle battle during one of those heats. And when his guard is down, the more tenacious youth will overcome. 
Kelly's lost in the quarterfinals of last year's event. He lost in round three in 2014. I'm claiming a round five finish for Kelly Slater at Pipeline this year, and I'm praying that he proves me wrong and that he wins the entire event. Now, my top contenders for this event are no big surprises. I'm going with Gabriel Medina and John John Florence. I'm actually shocked that John John hasn't made every final here for the past three years or since he's been competing in this event. And I'm not at all shocked that Gabriel Medina actually has made the past two finals in the past two years. But neither has actually won a Pipe Masters event. And obviously that is a life goal for both those surfers. This is also, I think, indicative of a rivalry that I think will play out for the next decade or so, with each of these surfers attempting to assert their dominance, not only at Pipeline, but with the number of world titles that they'll both attain. Each of them have won so far. I think that they'll also continue to try to assert their dominance in their small wave prowess, in their air game, in the most views on their web clips, which John John is far and away the winner. With their Instagram followers, Gabriel is crushing John John in that case with 4.9 million followers. John John has less than 900,000. I think they'll continue to compete in their salaries. John John sets the record there with a rumored $4 million a year contract with Hurley and a rumored $1 million bonus for winning the world title this year. So I don't know what Gabriel makes, but it's not as much as John John. So there's a lot of pride and there's a lot of bragging rights at stake here for each of these guys. If John John were to win this event, it might be the most impressive competitive year for any surfer in the history of surfing. So far this year, he's won the Eddie, he won the world title, and then this would mean that he'd win the Pipe Masters and the Triple Crown. So it'd be monumental. That said, John John still displays some flaws in his competitive surfing. He lost to the wildcard Sippo at Lowers this year with just really unforced errors. He needed small scores and he couldn't get him. He makes basic mistakes occasionally. He falls a surprising amount for a surfer of his caliber, albeit he's going for insane maneuvers, but he's still falling, you know? Gabriel, on the other hand, rarely makes mistakes, and he rarely ever falls. He, his losses, Gabriel's losses, they seem to be dealt more by Mother Nature than anything else, where he's just not offered the waves that he needs to complete the scores that he needs. So I think Gabriel is the more focused and competitively capable surfer to win this event. I think John John is the more naturally apt surfer, and he's undeniably got a has a harmony with Pipeline itself where he's just always on the best waves of the day, lefts, rights. They come to him in times when he needs them. He always surfs them really beautifully. So if John John's going to win anywhere, it's going to be Pipe. I just don't, and and to be honest, I don't know how the seeding will play out. If these guys are at opposite ends of the bracket, I'm predicting that they find themselves in the final together. And while I'd far prefer that John John wins the event and wins every event moving forward until his retirement, I absolutely love everything about his surfing, his approach, his style, all of it. I still think that some of his drive has been deflated by his world title win. I don't know that he's really fighting for as much right now. Whereas I think Gabriel's drive is actually in overdrive right now. And nothing will stop him from advancing past his second place finish for the past two years in a row. I think he's going to one-up that. I'm predicting a John John and Gabriel Medina final with Gabriel winning his first of many Pipe Masters. Thanks for listening to Surf Splendor. Go to surfsplendorpodcast.com to leave a comment about this new show format. Do you want more of it? Do you want me to shut up? I am your puppet. I will abide by the consensus. Leave your comment in today's show's comment section. Also, just a reminder, you are the principal investor in this grand experiment in surf media criticism and podcasting. This show survives with your donations. 
surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate is where you'll find the PayPal link. We're suggesting a $5 monthly commitment, but we'll certainly accept your generosity in any denomination. All right. In case you forgot who this has been talking for the last 30 minutes, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. Relax. Enjoy the Pipe Masters this coming week. Please honor me if my predictions come true. And by all means, please forget about this entire episode if my predictions are wrong. But more importantly, spend some time in the ocean, catch a couple waves, and shred on.